I'm going to encourage you to join me in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 1. Ephesians, chapter number 1. I want to do a little follow-through with some application. We've spent some time talking the last uh, six weeks about how the Lord prepared His disciples for the huge task of leading a newborn church. That's a a good study to see how he invested in their lives and taught them and prepared to them. In case you're wondering what happened, start at the book of Acts and start reading how he uh, ministered through them and how that changed the world. We are recipients of that great work of Christ in the church, obviously. And so that's a, that is an exciting story. Now, today, I want to follow through with some personal appeal to each of us as far as our service to the Lord. I had received a gift that I am conscious of all the time. It's not that I wake up in the morning and think of it as the first thing in my mind or uh, such, but I'm conscious of it because it's done so much for me. Many, many years ago, I was in school, graduated, Kay and I were married, we started a family, and I thought, well, this is what it's going to be. I had a job, and we just worked, and uh, uh, worked a little bit in the church, teaching Sunday school and such, and during the time that was going on, the Lord had started a work in my heart and uh, called me to ministry, and I went from there, we we packed up everything and went on to Bible college to uh, get more training because I knew uh, I was not ready for anything like that. Um, Went to school, struggled through a lot of uh, uh, challenges. Our family was starting to grow, and that is always a challenge when you're in school. Finished up in one school and started in another school and started working toward a master's degree. And by then we had six little ones running around the house, and if you've been there before, or if you're in school now with children, uh, I applaud you. It's quite a challenge. I managed to work out a master's degree in 11 years um, with all those children, and I was very surprised that none of them spoke Greek or Hebrew, because they got that every time I walked them to sleep at night, counting vocabulary words and stuff. But but in that, I, I was content. When I reached the end of my, my master's degree, I was content. Uh, that's quite an undertaking. That's 11 years of that as you're bringing up a family. I, I got to a place where I thought, you know, with all the cost of schooling and all the time invested in schooling, I was very content to stop and say, now it's time to, to invest in the, the home and the children. And all that money that's been going into school can now go to, you know, provide for things around the house that have been so graciously and uh, uh, patiently put off. And just about that time, I received a telephone call from the president of uh, the seminary, Tyndale Seminary, and uh, he said, uh, we want you to go on for your doctorate. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, no, after 11 years of this, I'm not sure I, I'm ready to do that. I couldn't, I didn't have the money for one to do that. And he says, that's okay, somebody's already taken care of that. They paid the entire way and all the books to go with it. That stunned me 
to, to tell the truth has stunned me. And even more than that, I do not know to this day who did that. I do not know. I do not know if it's somebody I've been ministering to in the church, if it's somebody who didn't even know me. I have no clue. They never told me, and I honestly, I, I didn't ask, uh, but I was overwhelmed. That was quite a gift. And I know what that, that was for somebody to invest that kind of money. Now, my, my part of that was, how do you respond to such a gift even when you don't know who it is that gave it to you, how do you respond to such a thing? I wanted to show my gratitude, of course, and, and uh, I wanted to show how it benefited me and my ministry and all that came. It, I had a sense, and I still do to this day, that there's a debt there I don't know how to satisfy. And now, it's not that I, I feel I have to make the balances equal. There, there's, there is a sense of obligation, there is a sense of duty, but it's much more than that. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean. There, there, is, there is a response that you just want to express with your heart because somebody's invested in you. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Uh, how do you turn that around and invest in somebody else? That's, that's where I came to it. The, the best I could do with such a gift was to give it. To share it with others that these things have been taught to me not to put a plaque on my wall, but to benefit the church. So I take that and I, I give it back in that sense. And, and I feel that obligation. I feel that, that duty. But I also feel it as a, a heartfelt thing. A response to somebody's investment in my life. You know, I, I set that before you here because that's such a small scale compared to what we see here in the book of Ephesians, there is an investment in your life made by God. And we're going to learn what that investment is as we walk through this. And, and I want to have our hearts tested as to what kind of response we give to what the Lord has done for us. Now, we would all confess that there is no way we can ever pay Him for what He has done for us. Grace is free, right? But how do you give back to grace? How do you give back to someone who's given to us absolutely everything? That's called service with a grateful heart. That's what we're going to look at as we go through this. Now, I'll tell you how simple this study is, okay? We're studying three sentences. Okay? There's a trick to this. It's three sentences. The first one in Ephesians 1, verse 1 and 2. The second one is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's one sentence. And the third sentence is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. So what's that tell you? It's only three sentences, but it's all of chapter 1. It's a great chapter. I love this chapter, and I just caption it. God's investment in you so that you may have all you need to serve Him. And it's true. You have all you need to serve Him. So we're going to enjoy this study. And I don't want it to be merely an academic study. I want it to be a testing of the response of our own hearts to His investment. Look here in, in the first two verses. We're just going to cover that. Matter of fact, even only part of it. 
says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's start with uh, a word of prayer here. Gracious Lord, we're entering into your word that we might study it and know it and even respond to it. Lord, overwhelm us with an understanding of what you've done. And also, Lord, instill within us a heartfelt response to it. That as we walk from this place today, our desire to serve you will be overflowing. And it will bring glory to your name. Work in us today, Lord, and teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. These are simple words. You just heard them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Let me break down some particulars, just some some really meaty little pieces here. When he starts talking in verse 1 here about Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, by the will of God, God has done something right there, hasn't he? You see that. What Paul is going to say to you about himself and the ministry he has, it's through God that this is possible. It's through him. And there's an emphasis. Right away, it's, it's almost the very first thing out of his mouth. It's through the will of God. And the, the reference to the saints, the holy ones who are living in Ephesus, uh, and they call, they're called faithful ones in Christ Jesus, uh, all that's wrapped up in what God does. It's through him, through the will of God. And we're going to give that emphasis. And then he goes on to verse 2 to talk about grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again, it's from him. The grace we have, we love it, don't we? Where does it come from? It comes from God. The peace we have, where does that come from? It comes from God. So immediately, in the first two phrases, he talks about what we have through God and what we have from God. Now this is setting us up for a very beautiful pattern. You can test this. Matter of fact, if you like homework, I love giving it, uh, here's something that you can do. Notice the pattern. The source is God. The recipients are us. The source is God. The recipients are us. You can set up a piece of paper and set the book of Ephesians, just chapter 1 would do. It would take plenty of time just to do that. And put on your chart, on one side put the name God, and on the other side put me. Not, not me, not Pastor Bob. Put, put me as in you, okay? Put your own name up there. But set this little chart up there and walk through this passage and see who's doing the action. You see the word predestined, and you say, I don't know what that is. It sounds impressive. Or you might be scared to death of it. I don't know. But you see the word predestined. It's a verb. Somebody's doing that. Put it in the right category. Somebody's receiving that. Put that in the right category. Go all the way through it with the verbs. You're going to see a fascinating thing. When you're done, you can add it up percentage-wise, and you can see who's doing the work, who's the source, and who's receiving the work, who's the recipient, and you could probably guess which is which. This chapter is rich with it, and really, it's something worth your time to, to map it out and look at it. 
because we're going to be doing that over the next couple of weeks, and, and uh, it's a valuable thing to do. There's an emphasis we have to see. If we're going to have the right response to what he has done, we have to know what he's done, right? So the chapter is full of that information. And, and, and I encourage you to do that, because here's what it comes down to, and I, I'll just say it this way. There is a central focus that we live by. Right? Maybe we haven't put a lot of time into thinking it. But far too often it is true that we as human beings set ourselves as the center of what we live by. What we think, what we do, has an awful lot of we in it, doesn't it? We... we center our attention and our actions around that. And we can probably sit down this morning and start talking theology and doctrine and things like that. And we can say, we believe in the Lord. We can go through the things and understand what we know about the Lord. We believe in His Word and we can go and pull out all the information that we have because we believe in His Word. We can say we believe in prayer, right? And we can mark that down as we believe this. We have an understanding of God. We have a viewpoint concerning God. And yet, with all the theology and doctrine and knowledge we have here, the way we express that is the way we live. The way we live. What do we do in response to that kind of knowledge? We express our theology all the time. Maybe we're not conscious of it. We believe this of God. We understand this of God. But the way it's proven and shown is by the way we live. Now just for a second, let me get somewhat philosophical. I hated philosophy class to tell the truth, so this will be short. All right? um, there can only be one center focus. There's only one thing that occupies that focus for us. And we can, we can make it simple this morning and say, well, it could be God or it could be man. Man meaning myself, me. It could be one of these that are getting my focus. And whichever is getting my focus, it will affect my ministry, won't it? Absolutely. It, it will be that way. For example, if I put myself as the center of all that I think and all that I do, then I'm going to minister according to my wisdom and according to my experience and according to my strength and my purpose and the outcome will be mine. It's what I produce. And that will be my focus. And yet, at the same time, my heart's desire is to set God at the focus so it's His wisdom so it's his will, so it's his plans, his strength, his purpose, and the outcome is for his glory. Now, you see these two work side by side. Technically, we call one theocentric, which is God-centered. And we, and we say, well, that's the right thing to do. But on the other side, we've got a man-centered concept. And to tell the truth, these two don't mesh. If you go through the philosophy of all these things, you come down with a couple of things like this. I'm just going to give you a thought or two. But those who put man as the center of it, uh, they begin with human thinking and acting and feeling 
So the human is just an individual that stands on its own. Uh, he's responsible. He's acting on his own. He's conscious of himself. He creates his own values. He creates his own meaning in life. And do you know what bothers him the most? Any outside influence that is trying to design him. That bothers him. He has great trouble with one little phrase that we've read here this morning, the will of God. That is his biggest adversary, because he operates according to his own will. The will of God stands in his face, and he doesn't know what to do with it, because there's a clash between the two. There's a clash. Now, where are we this morning? You say, well, I know what we stand for, and what we believe, and I also have noticed my own actions. And I think somewhere we muddle around in between those two places. We, 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 we can cite all the doctrine and all the belief and all that, but in the practice, it becomes our plans, it becomes our strategy, our strength, it becomes our efforts, even though that might be unintentional. We do it, don't we? It's kind of like going to that soft-serve ice cream dispenser. Chocolate on this side, vanilla on this side, but we think we get the best of both worlds when we pull the middle lever and they swirl together. Right? Honestly, is that our conception of ministry? We take our belief in God, we take our practices of our own will, and we swirl them together and say, ha, it's the best of both worlds? Ah, now you know where I'm challenged in my heart. Because that's also something pastors have to struggle with too. We read God's Word. We see it and we struggle with it because we have been given the best gift. Our salvation? Even how it's expressed in the church. The church is birth, it's existence, it's purpose. It's all bound up in the will of God, isn't it? Paul's an apostle by whom? The will of God. The existence of this church is by the will of God. Who's the author of it? God is. God is. And what's fascinating to me is that when you think through the church, understand this, the church is not some product of evolution. They just didn't come along in steps and all of a sudden there it was. Uh, the church is not a response to a problem. That God also decided, oops, how am I going to solve that one? God did not re create the church as a response. He's never one step behind. He's the initiator. You've got the text in front of you. Just for a second, look at verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That should blow a few circuits up here in the mind just to try to conceive that. He put this together before the world was made. Before Adam and Eve started putting their footprints all over the planet. He had already designed the church. That's his wisdom. That's uh, incredible to me. You say, well, how do I know it's the church? Well, he's the author of the church. He has a will for the church. And he's made the church of individuals, right? Right? Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
He's talking about you. When did he choose you? Whoa. This is pretty fascinating information before the founding of the world. Now, a wise church, in response to this information, a wise church will consult his ways. A wise church will follow his directions. A wise church will be productive according to their trust in him. That's a wise church because they understand who's the author and who will do we exist by. We read a verse in the Old Testament, we say often, especially uh, around patriotic days, we would say, uh, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm 33. We are not mistaken to say, blessed is a church whose God is the Lord. Churches operate all the time with their little book of theology and their human practices. They do it all the time. I don't want to be caught up in that. I don't want to be like that. But I know that's the struggle. Remember the days of Joshua? He, he goes in, and we talked about this in VBS. We always like to talk about Jericho and all the other things Joshua did. He led the people into the, wilderness, or into the promised land. And right at the very end of his life, in Joshua 24, he challenged them. Oh, he challenged them thoroughly. As their leader, he was about to step off the scene, and he knew it. And he recounted for them what the Lord had done. And he spent some time to express how he called them to be a nation. How he made a people of them, and and caused them to grow into a multitude. And he says, "And, and God is the one who delivered us from Egypt. God is the one who brought us through the Red Sea. God is the one who rescued us from the Israelites. I mean, from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from Balaam and his schemes. God rescued us from these things. God gave us victory over Jericho and over all these other cities within the land. And God gave us their vineyards. And God gave us their olive groves. And God gave us their land. And we've been blessed with a bountiful land. And then these words followed. He says, now therefore. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the rivers in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. He gives them three options. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, But as for me and my house, you know the rest. We will serve the Lord. What a challenge. What a challenge he set before him. That was to be their response to all that God had done. They serve him. Is that where you are? Responding to the great work the Lord has done for you by serving him with a grateful heart? Here in Ephesians 1, we're going to reveal the details of God's will. God's will. Now, I'm not talking about just a basic overall plan with details to be determined. I've got this uh, understanding from His Word itself that God doesn't just make a skeleton of His will and let you put on any flesh you want 
And we're all going to be surprised what kind of beast you get in the end. That's not his design. God knows in detail, in detail, the aspects of his will, which is phenomenal to me. It includes the church, his details about the church. And just as intimately as God is involved in the church, he's also involved in the affairs of man, the very lives that you live and the very ministries that we have. God has a will. I'm convinced of it. And all the details are there just as sure as he created the world and made the stars and put them in the universe. God has been mapping out history too. He knows you. Does that surprise you? He knows you. He knows what he has done for the church as a whole. He knows what he's done for you as an individual. Not one person is in the church by accident. Not one. Nor will one show up in heaven and God says, Oop, how'd you get here? He's not surprised because he's in charge. That's his will. No one is placed in his work without his fingerprints all over him. And I like the understanding of this because we need to understand his ways, his will that we may serve with that kind of heart that responds to him. This is where I think we need to conclude that as a church is made up of individuals, as a whole, we are a fellowship. We are a fellowship that knows Christ as Savior, but we know that we're here by His will. And we have a purpose. And we will serve Him from our hearts. Now, either we're going to believe that. Either we will. Or, we are going to give the credit for our own creativity and our own ability to draw men to ourselves and say how clever we are, and we're going to form this congregation by our own strength and by our own wisdom. You see, those two pictures clash, don't they? Man, God, where's the center? Our church, man, God, where's the center? Where's our focus? Ephesians 1 is going to bring us to this, because this is what Paul concluded in Romans 12. You know these verses, I know. Verse 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a holy, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's where I want to go with our study. I want to understand this. And, and every time I pull out books to study the outline of Ephesians, because I, I like to figure that, they'll go through chapter 1 through 3 is a position we have in Christ, and chapter 4 through 6 is a practice we have in Christ, and chapter 4, somewhere around verse 10, it goes into the protection, you know, the armor of God section. Uh, uh, Chapter, I mean, chapter 6 does, the armor of God section. And so we go through all this understanding, and this is what I find more times than not. You ready? All this outlining, and it's all in front of me, in detail, 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 detail. Chapter 1, 1 and 2, introduction. That's it. Introduction. What did we just see already? 
It's a little deeper than introduction, isn't it? Paul is called an apostle by what? The will of God. I want to challenge you in this, especially as you do your homework. Cite the number of times the word will or purpose or words related to it show up in these first 23-some verses. It's not just the introduction. It is expressing something far greater than that. Paul does this well. Paul, I'm called an apostle. We say, oh, he's top-ranked guy. Actually, an apostle was, when they knew themselves well, they were a low-ranked guy. They were just a servant given a message. That's what they one called to take a message. That's an apostle. And they knew that they were given that responsibility of receiving the message from the Lord and taking it to other people. That was their job. Just take the message. It wasn't always easy. Read the life of Paul. You could get stoned for that. You could get beaten for that. You can get put in jail for that. All these other things he went through. But this is what he told of himself in, in Galatians. And he started to write that out in the first couple of verses. Verse 15 he says, But when it pleased God, that's neat, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, who called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might proclaim Him among the heathen. He understood. God chose him for that job. That he might go and preach the news. He's just in his going, was expressing that God had made a huge investment in his life in order that he might have everything he needs to serve him. That's Paul's ministry. All the way through, he expresses it so well. He's done the same for you, hasn't he? He said, no, he didn't call me to be an apostle. But let's use the phrase, the will of God, for a minute. Listen to this phrase. This is, this is fascinating. This is come, comes from a commentary. Paul, by saying he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he attributed nothing to the vigor of his faith, to the passion of his gratitude for the divine goodness, to the completeness of his self-consecration to Christ's service. He was living and acting under the control of forces which had their origin above and beyond himself. His apostolic work was the effect and expression of a divine volition. He believed that the divine will is the root and origin of all Christian righteousness and blessedness, and this is the secret of a strong and effective Christian life. Our spiritual activity reaches its greatest intensity when we are so filled with the glory of the divine righteous, the divine love, the divine power, that we are conscious only of God and thought of ourselves is lost in him. That's what one commentator said. That's a mouthful. But when somebody says the will of God, it alarms some people. They get a little nervous. They bristle up a little bit. The will of God. What if I tell you God has a will for you? You get real nervous make you become a pastor. That's usually the biggest fear. You have to grow a beard and all these things. What do you do? You, you say, what is this? Does God have a will for you? 
Does God have a will for Hillsdale Bible Church? Do we, do we bristle under the idea? Do we trust Him with these things? Oh, I'm starting to ask harder questions now. Do we trust Him when we read that? If it says, thus is the will of God, do we immediately say, Lord, I don't know what that is, but I trust you? Do we respond that way quickly when we hear these words? Would you believe that God is the one who has shaped these things according to His will? Your life? Where you are now? Some people read of the will of God and they see this rigid thing. They see this uh, um, this stiff concept. Like, I can't move. It, it, it you know, where he takes me, I'm, some people equate it with like a robot or something like that. And quite honestly, if you think that way, your view of God is that he's harsh. Your view of God is that he's, he's hard, that he's uncaring. And yet others understand the will of God as it's linked to grace. Now, here's your other challenge. As you mark down all the words about will and purpose, also mark down the number of times he mentions his grace and his love in this passage. For if we understand that there's a link between grace and will, then we're going to understand that the word of, of will has a lot more to do with his pleasure and his joy and that which he has given as a gracious disposition towards you. It pleases Him. It pleases Him to call you into His ministry. It pleases Him to make you a child of His. He loves you. Are you convinced of it? That makes the will an entirely different thing, doesn't it? Entirely different thing. That's where I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you about God's will. I want to walk with you uh, about how we respond to this will. Because Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, is expressing something. God has invested in him. A huge investment. God has invested in him. More than just calling him an apostle. God has given to him, according to this chapter, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Is that big? Yes. God has blessed him with all this. God has chosen him. God has predestined him. God has adopted him as his son. God has bestowed on him his grace. God has given to him redemption. God has given to him forgiveness of his sins. God has given to him a, a lavishness of his grace and wisdom and insight. And God has made known to him his will. And God has given him an inheritance and placed him in a grand purpose. And God has given him hope. And God has sealed him with the Holy Spirit. And God has placed him among all of his possessions. And God called him an apostle. No wonder why he couldn't stop his pen. He was so excited about what God had done to make me what I am now. He understood God's investment. How do you think Paul lived then? A heartfelt response, right? Now, we're going to learn that same thing as we walk through this. And I'm going to keep asking questions like, how has God called you? How has God invested in you? What, what has he done? 
See, Paul's not a, a solitary person, a, a single event along the course of history. This is God's working with the church. This is God's working with his people. This is how he's done it. And Paul's just merely an example of it. This is what God's will is for you. His will is written all over your life, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. It's written all over my life. His will is written all over this church. It's part of his plan. His will is written all over our service to him. His will in not just the whole scheme, but the individual parts. He's invested in us that way. It's powerful. It's powerful. So I challenge you this week. Dig into the text. Do your homework. Make your chart. Cite who's doing what and who's receiving what. Mark down the number of times it references the will or the purpose and related thoughts. Mark time the number, the number of times it mentions grace and love and mark those parts and see who is the center of this awe and then ask yourself, is he the center of my life too? Ask yourself that. That's an adventure. I hope you're up for it. I'm excited. I gotta quit. <laughs> This is great. We've got to we've got to adjust our focus. That's what I I see myself personally. A readjustment of that focus. I I need to fine tune that. I need to set it right so that I can respond correctly. Heavenly Father, you know every one of us in this room. Obviously, you do. It's an amazing thing you have done that you should save us, that you should love us, that you should place us in your church and give us a responsibility in serving you. But I pray, Lord, it's not a duty, but it's a love response of ours to a gracious God. Warm our hearts with your truth. Draw us close to yourself as we get a bigger and bigger and bigger picture of who you are. May we also see what you can do through us as we serve you with a full heart. Challenge us thoroughly with this passage, we pray, and and in the process we know Your blessings will be on us too. We want to give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.